Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. That is Psalm 100, which along with Psalms 97 and 99 are the psalms appointed for today, Tuesday, March the 29th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We're continuing our look today at the um, prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 17, verses 19 to 27, in the Gospel uh, of John, chapter 6, verses 16 to 27, and in the letter of Paul to the Roman church, chapter 7, verses 13 to 25. So Jeremiah is is laying out the Lord's um, complaint against his people, and we're continuing to see that today. The Lord said to him, Go and stand in the people's gate, by which the kings of Judah enter, and by which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem. And say. So, what he's telling him to do is go to each of the gates, beginning with the people's gate by which the kings come in and go out, go there, and then to all the gates of Jerusalem afterwards, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah, and all Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. Thus says the Lord, Take care for the sake of your lives, and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day, or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. And so the, the, one of the things that they're not supposed to do is carry things in and out of the city or in the city itself or anywhere else, actually, on the Sabbath because carrying a burden uh, is prohibited because it's work. And so don't carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck that they might not hear and receive instruction. And so the, the situation is, you know, you remember I said yesterday that the Lord is, is going to really come down on them hard, and the length of their exile is based on the number of Sabbath years. So every seventh year is a Sabbath year, and you're supposed to let the land lie fallow and do no work. If something comes up, you can pick it, and you can eat of that, but you're not allowed to do anything to prepare the land or to plant in the land. So the the produce of the land will produce enough, and it, it's it's a way of looking back to the wilderness time with the manna. And so that they're they're supposed to let it lie fallow, and it's to trust the Lord. And it's one of the things that he puts in. People ask me about the economics of uh, Judaism, and particularly in the Old Testament. And, and the economics there would would mean that nobody was getting incredibly wildly wealthy, nor was anybody irretrievably poor, because at every seven years, they take a year off. Every seven days, they take a day off. And then every 50 years, the land reverts to its original owner. So if somebody had to sell themselves into slavery because they fell into debt, for instance, then at the end of 50 years, the land would revert to them. They would, they would temporarily lease the land. Essentially, you would buy the productive capacity of the land over the next period of years, and that's how you would pay off the other person's debt, and then they would become an indentured servant. But there, was, there were limitations on how you could treat those servants. And so the, the simplest level of 
obedience is the every seven days obedience of the Sabbath. The, the more difficult is the every seven years obedience to the Sabbath year. And on top of that, in the 50th year, so directly after a Sabbath year, becomes a jubilee year when there is no, again, no produce of the land. You let it lie fallow again at that time. So here the Lord's coming into him about carrying burdens on the Sabbath. Now, is it a problem where people, was the main issue here that people were carrying things around the city on the Sabbath? No, what what's happening is actually those burdens they're talking about, this is work and it's productive work. They're not even uh, observing the once a week Sabbath um, because they're, they're continuing to try and make money. The only thing that matters is the making of money, and that's what's being really criticized here. He said, but if you listen to me, declares the Lord, and bring no burden, uh, bring in no burden by the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but keep the Sabbath day holy and do no work in it, then there shall enter by the gates of this city kings and princes who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their officials, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And so there's a prosperous thing here, a safety thing here. If you obey this simple commandment to do no work on the Sabbath, I will greatly bless you and give you safety and prosperity. And this city shall be inhabited forever. And the people shall come from the cities of Judah and the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin, from the Shephelah, from the hill country, and from the Negev, the desert, bringing burnt offerings and sacrificing sizes, grain offerings and frankincense, and bringing thank offerings to the house of the Lord. So he's promising them, if they will just keep the Sabbath, they'll have all the prosperity they can handle. They won't have to work on the Sabbath to get the prosperity they want. They just have to trust him. But if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy and not to bear a burden and enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I'll kindle a fire in its gates, and it'll devour the palaces of Jerusalem and shall not be quenched. And so indeed it was. That's exactly the judgment that happened, that, that the, the, the gates were set on fire and burned to the ground, the wall was toppled, and all the great houses there were destroyed. And God's trying to make it as simple as he can. You know, if you'll just do this one thing, because if, if they do the one thing and they see the Lord's blessing on their lives in keeping the one commandment regarding the Sabbath, then everything else essentially is going to fall into place, which makes me question, right, my own observance of the Lord's day. Do I need to step up my game? Do I need to actually consider this? I mean, I don't know why we as Christians consider that the Sabbath no longer matters, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody. So how do we do this? How do we keep this Sabbath? Is it something that we should actually be keeping in the same way and in the correct way. And I believe there is a value to that. I believe that that, that he is the same Lord who gave the commandment to do that. And so to, to, to keep all the others and hold them up as values while at the same time ignoring this one does seem to be an odd thing. And I'm not sure the church is stronger or better since we moved away from keeping Sabbath like that. In the gospel today, remember yesterday, Jesus had just fed the 5,000, and so then he, they were going to make him king, so he went up on the mountain by himself. And when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So they left in a boat before 
he came back down the mountain. We don't know why they chose to do that. We have no earthly idea why it is they decided they would go. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It's I, do not be afraid. I'm not sure how much that would actually have comforted me. In other places they talk about they thought it was his ghost in the other Gospels. But I'm not sure that I would be comforted if Jesus was walking on on the water. Um, I'm not sure that that wouldn't scare me even more to think, how is he doing this? And and what kind of man is this, right? Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. And again, as I mentioned yesterday, William Barclay, uh, his uh, commentary here will say that that, that he was walking near the land. And and no, it's not the same. It, It actually matters. John, are you saying John just got it wrong? John didn't care about the detail. He has him walking on the water, but you've got him near the water, walking on the, on the dry land. It just doesn't make sense, but Barclay can't accept the miraculous. And we see that so often in the church, even today. I mean, their whole denomination is predicated on the idea that, that the gifts of the Spirit were only for the, for the apostolic age and ended with the, the codification of the canonizing of the, old, of the New Testament. And I just don't see where there's a warrant for that. So here on the next day, so the day after he fed them, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus hadn't entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So John's making much of they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. There's a, there's a key there, right, in, in this giving thanks. That giving thanks, like it, it acted as the catalyst, I guess, for that food that he offered up to become enough sufficient to feed 5,000 people in spite of the fact that it's only five barley loaves and a couple of small fish. But John points out again here, he puts that detail near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Now, why did they do that? They knew that, that Jesus wasn't in the boat with the disciples and that there was only one boat there. So at this point, they go and basically take water taxis across from Tiberias over to Capernaum. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal." So Jesus is cynical about why they followed him. I mean, these are pilgrims, and they're on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. And here they, they have come across Jesus, and Jesus has fed them as Moses and the Lord fed the fathers when they were in the wilderness. And now here they come seeking him. And all they want to know is, when did you come over here? We didn't see you leave. They don't ask the question that really could be an intriguing answer, which is, how did you get here? Did you walk around the lake? What did you do? No, he took a shortcut. <laughs> he walked across the water and took the, the sort of the, the as the crow flies uh, trail to get there. 
So he, he's telling them, though, that, that you're here because you want more bread. You're, you're not here, actually, because of the signs that you saw. You don't see it pointing to that. You've already decided two things yesterday. You decided that I was king, and before that you had decided I might be the prophet that was to come. Now, what do they call him today? Rabbi, when did you come here? So again, it's, it's, it's a great title. You know, it's, it's a sign of respect that they believe that Jesus has something to say, that he is a teacher. Um, but he's suggesting to them that they need to get a better clue and get a better picture of what they're looking for. There's more on offer than bread. And it goes back to um, Isaiah 55, the first couple of verses there. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen, diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Now, is that um, God promising you know, sort of this incredible banquet? And the answer is no. He's, he's saying, come get salvation. Come get true bread and true water for me. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Why um, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life? And it's that food that Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 55. And it's the same food that Jesus was talking about when he, when he told the disciples that he had food they knew nothing of, when he met with a Samaritan woman after they had gone to get food for everybody. In the Romans passage, this is one of the, the more difficult passages, I think, to deal with in some ways, because it, it's does it describe, for instance, a person who is in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, or is it the situation prior to receiving all of that? And I believe, along with most people, that it, that it refers to those who were before it, it, it can refer to a situa- the situation that continues to be in our lives after we've received the Holy Spirit because we haven't been fully sanctified. But what it does is, is that, that, it, that it, it talks about that the sin nature overpowers my desires. And so I believe that, that when the sin nature overpowers my desires, what I'm saying is that I'm not living by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit gives me the power— to live beyond the level of desire, whether I choose to or not, is up to me. But the Spirit gives me the power, it's resident in me, to overcome that. He says, did that which is good, the law, then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And remember, his argument was is that, that once it's defined as sin, I want it so much that I become more sinful simply because I know what sin is, I know what's wrong. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, one of the things that we as Christians take for granted and believe as as part of our package, we, and, and all of us do, I mean, I don't think there are any any groups that call themselves Christian that, that would deny what I'm getting ready to say, and, and that has to do with the fall which is Genesis 3, affected all of our lives. And so my will, Luther would say, uh, is bound by sin. And so the fall touches every part of my being. Now, Jews don't believe that. They don't have that theological presupposition and understanding at all. And so when Paul says this, this is, know this, this is not in line 
with any Jewish teaching that I'm aware of. <clears throat> he says, so I, I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. So I can, I can hate sin. I can hate these things. But there's, there's something in me that's controlling me that takes me in a direction where I do those things rather than the things I want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. I agree with the law that these things are bad. The law is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. It doesn't mean I'm not guilty, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So he says that twice. And there he, he accepts the reality that nothing good dwells in me. And the proof of that, he says, is, is that I want to do the right thing, but the thing that dwells in me, which is sin, causes me to do this other thing instead. So I'm under the slavery and the bondage of sin. It's a captive of the will is sometimes the way that it's, that it's phrased. He said, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close in hand, which is sort of the opposite of what I talked about yesterday with the Cain and Abel story. When God comes, when Cain is so angry with Abel because his sacrifice had been acceptable to God, that, that God has to come and tell him that sin's crouching at your door. His desire is, is for you, but you must master it. And so he's putting the onus on Cain, but because he knows that this anger that Cain feels, Cain's got a plan, and and Satan's got a plan, and that's to bring this thing to full fruition, this anger and this hatred of his brother. He said, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So my mind is weak in comparison to these desires that are in the the parts of my body. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And and as I said, I believe that 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 means that an unregenerate person, a person without Jesus who has not received the Holy Spirit, that's the war and that's the observable thing. And, and an honest person will see that this mess of sin dwelling in me is causing me to die and I need a Savior. And that's why he cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who, by sending the Holy Spirit, allows us to be delivered from this body of death as the Holy Spirit begins to inhabit us and come to full flower in our lives.